Hey ho, everybody. Welcome back to Major Please, a hateful voyage through the Delta Quadrant. I'm Joseph. I'm Peter. Uh, Peter, man, I'm I'm really happy today. I'm I'm renewed, I'm refreshed. That, that, the cl- Why is that? The cloud was really tough to get through. That that tested my soul. Uh, I the cloud was a piece of hot garbage, but I think I had the most fun recording our podcast for the cloud than I did any of our other episodes prior. Oh, it made for great quality podcasting because there was so much rich content for us to pull from the the rotted vine that was the episode. Made me wonder what the frame of mind for these writers were. And again, you know how important a first season is. Like, what, what were these guys really shooting for? Was it just a, a superficial, like, hey, let's bang out some episodes until we get a feel for who these characters are? Or, or were they really trying to come in deep off the bat? Because sitting there and watching the cloud and again, the, uh, the, the parade of fleshlights that uh, Paris sprung on Kim there, it's like, you don't really have to look hard for this stuff to become horrific. And was there just like no second opinion in this writer's room? The inconsistency of Voyager writing could not be better typified by what we just watched because of how good it was, which is why I'm feeling refreshed. So our our episode today is season one, episode six, Eye of the Needle. And I don't know about you, spoiler alert, I would consider this by far the best episode that we've watched so far. Yeah, man, hands down. No question. I would I would consider it one of the better episodes of Star Trek, period. Uh, yeah. For a lot of reasons. And it's almost mystifying to me that this exists in the same continuity as the fucking cloud and the candy corn tragedy and some of the other absolute dog shit that we have been forced to witness. I, you know, I agree with you 100%. And, uh, you know, our, our listener base is starting to grow. I'm seeing a lot of fresh likes coming in on uh, Facebook, a lot of new downloads for the show. Uh, and and unfortunately, there's some viewers out there who are getting pulled into this black hole with us. I've got some of my friends who never gave Voyager the time of day. And since they started listening to the podcast, they've been digging in on their own, uh, unwarranted. And uh, episodes like this, I think, are good because it's going to justify the amount of time that we're spending on things, the level of thought that we're putting in on it, and, and hopefully some of the more of the, uh, the the viewership engagement that we've been generating. It, it, as much as we do enjoy the the hate part of what we're doing and just jamming on how shitty the show can be in so many different ways, it is somewhat life-affirming to get these episodes and we can, A, enjoy it, B, talk about something that's good, and then see, get into the happy nitty gritty stuff. Yeah. I mean, at the end of the day, let's not forget you and I are both pretty big Trek fans. And uh, and it's, it's cool seeing other people out there who are starting to get into it. And, and yeah, getting past the, the rough start and, and some, some meat and potatoes out of these things. Although I am somewhat concerned by this revelation that we have so many... So many people who are are giving Voyager their first try. I mean, we're we're not only seasoned Trek fans; we're seasoned haters. We're yeah. see, we're jaded and cynical, and we're pretty resistant to things disappointing us. You know, it, it comes with the territory. And some people are not ready for this. I think. 
at my deepest core, I, I fully embrace the schadenfreude of my friends struggling and, and being in pain. Uh, you know, we made the offer for the mailbag at the end of last episode. And, uh, you know, I've started to get some feedback. And again, friends of mine who never really gave Star Trek as an IP a really deep chance and and watching them as 30 something year olds come into this fresh worth. You know, I was a little kid when I started watching this is, you know, I, I was taking it as a, as gospel without thinking too deep on it. So there's a lot of critical thinking going into things now that it's enjoyable to watch these people struggle. And, and I, I'll bring it up when we get deeper into some of the doctor stuff here, but I've really realized that Star Trek writers across all of the properties are really the masters of willing fantastic technologies into existence in these universes with doing zero thought into what the implications are and what the real uses should be. Uh, and, and just the big head scratchers, the infuriating head scratchers that come out of it. You mean like a spore drive? Listen, man, I finished off. <laughs> I, I finished off season one of discovery and, and I got to say, I'm going to give it a solid B. I know you got to hate for it and I respect that, but I, I think you need to give that thing a fair shake. No, like holodecks. Uh, you know, we went balls deep on the holographic lung and the ridiculous of that. Like the writers acknowledging that now you can like build holographic constructs into someone's chest cavity. So clearly, you know, holograms wherever you want and it doesn't matter. And, and one of my buddies is watching and he's like, I'm really putting a lot of thought on the holodecks and, and you know, what, why, why aren't these entire ships just nothing but deck after deck of holodecks? And I'm like, dude, welcome to the fucking Trek debacle of, uh, of trying to wrap your head around this stuff. Like, why would you have any sort of ship that wasn't just one big holodeck inside? They do do that in a couple places. Remember Star Trek Insurrection. That's actually a plot point that there's a hollow ship that they want to like take all of the Baku, I think they're called, yeah. and put them on there while they're sleeping and shit like that. Yeah. Uh, and But I see your point. Sci- it, well, there's different types of sci-fi. You know, you've got like space fantasy spy sci-fi like Star Wars. You've got hard, gritty sci-fi that tries to shy away from the science fiction elements as much as possible, like, say, Battlestar Galactica. Sure. Uh, but Star Trek's supposed to be, okay, here's its grounded in reality, sort of. You know, it's mm. a sort of future vision. We're trying to keep this somewhat plausible and feasible while still understanding that we're going to be doing things that aren't necessarily what we would call real in I- 20. 20- 2018. I think a lot of times the underlying plot point for technology in Star Trek isn't keeping things grounded or whatever. I think it's, you know, at the end of the day, you're talking about TV shows and a lot of the technology they bring into play is just uh, uh, financial shortcuts for the TV show. Transporters exist so that, you know, uh, the original series didn't have to run through shuttle landing sequences on every planet that they visit. And I think if you just had excessive holodeck use, you know, okay, now my bedroom's turning into part of the bridge or whatever, you know, uh, the galley's turning back into uh, a workstation. But so let me go to the dark place where my friend immediately went here. Uh, Nate, we'll call him. Um, He's like, all right, well, if they can just hologram uh, lungs into someone's chest, then, you know, why wouldn't you put amazing security features on a ship where, uh, okay, you know, you've got invaders, now we're just going to holographically put bullets in someone's brain or uh, <laughs> <laughs> well you just start beaming beaming uh uh deadly holographic spike traps 
to just right in front of where the intruder is. He's like, you know, you, you sp- we keep ragging on the lack of security and, and locking doors and everything else. Like, you know, maybe if they had uh, some hologram emitters on the bridge, you wouldn't have to care about the doors being unlocked because if, yeah, you know, <laughs> someone comes in that's not supposed to be there, it's like one of those haunted house uh, crushy wall traps start smushing people down. Just wait, man. It's going to get so much worse with how they bend and eventually break the whole hologram kind of strata of of realism and trying to accept this whole concept. Um, I feel like when they start with the Doctor and what they're doing with the Doctor now makes sense, mm-hmm. but they just go by, off the deep by end. the end of the run of this right at the end of the run of this series, they are so far off the fucking rails when it comes to holodeck shit that uh, there's they do get. Potentially the greatest episode ever involving holodeck technology out of this show, but everything else, it's just, it's not good. I think the stuff with the Doctor is is cool because it's it's the whole AI plot line, but kind of a, a different fork in the road. Well, I want to get into him, about what sentience means, but I guess we'll, we'll let's get into the episodes we can talk about. Yeah. So I guess what's important is to talk about before we launch into the summary proper is that this is the first time I feel like we watched a show where they had a clear narrative focus about what they were going to do. You had the A plot, which is going to be dominate most of the screen time, uh, and that involves the, the finding of a wormhole and things that happen around that. And we see that through four specific characters primarily. Janeway, Ensign Kim, Bolana Torres, and Tuvok. And Janeway and Kim represent the hope hopeful and optimistic side of the equation, whereas uh, 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 Balana and, and Tuvok clearly represent the more uh, doubting or realistic side. That's a good observation. I didn't, uh, I didn't really think about that. They take great pains. Those four have most of the dialogue, and they clearly take certain sides as the episode progresses to represent different kind of perspectives. And it was kind of refreshing that I, I felt and saw that structure and it really lent to the episode because they, we don't see any snarf snarf in this. Yeah. Tom Paris commits zero sex crimes and barely has dialogue. Mm. Chakotay is reduced to basically saying, yes, ma'am. As far as the A plot goes, we just have those four uh, as far as our main main crew with, with dialogue. You just touched on something I wanted to talk about here for a second next gen was notorious for writing entire characters out for episodes like there was a lot of absence of um deanna troy in the first season i'll I'll be curious i'm gonna start paying attention to are there any main characters completely absent from episodes here and and yeah this this is the first one I i can really think of where snarf snarf's not there um was there any starfleet people that we didn't see we saw everybody it's just it was very de-emphasized except for the, the four I mentioned in the A plot. Yeah. Um, the B plot is Cass and the Doctor primarily. We didn't even see Snarf Snarf on screen yeah. this entire episode. It was zero Neelix. So more narrative focus helped. And when we opened the episode. By the way, who posted that damn picture of, of Neelix on the Facebook group? Oh, that, that was me. What was it? That was me, the, the Neelix doll. The messed out leprechaun, I believe it was referred to as. Yes, I, fa- I, I found that, of course, through Google, Google image search. Uh, I was just uh, attempting to find a, you know, the worst Neelix outfit. I was searching for the actual costumes that he wore so that I could create kind of like a collage image so that, you know, we could all 
go down a terrible memory lane of of heroin needles and regret together. Oh. And oh. Um, instead, I found that I was like, oh, this is so much better. Let me put this up and traumatize everyone on Facebook at eight thirty in the morning. Yeah, mission accomplished, buddy. I I don't know who made that, but whoever it is. I think that was a pinhead from the Hellraiser series that was behind making that specific visual torture. <laughs> I, someone made that. Someone, someone put the finishing stitch on that thing and said, "This is an object I want other people to see because I think they will like it." And I'm that, gonna bring it to the office and just bother the hell out of everybody. And it's profound mental illness at work. <laughs> so, uh, but what isn't mental illness is that the Voyager sensors have picked up a wormhole. They deduce very quickly that they have a, a potential wormhole out there. And the teaser scene is just a, a couple minutes of them deciding that they're going to go run off and take a look at what this thing is. And their instant excitement that this could this could possibly be some kind of shortcut or avenue home for them. Um, clearly, they're on the hunt for something like that, given the background of, of the stable wormhole to the Gamma Quadrant that was found. So there's there's at least some reason to believe that they would be able to find something like this and... So they're they're wasting no time. They they get it on sensors and they they book it there, uh, even though it's off the beaten path and and on a on a dirt road out there somewhere in the Delta Quadrant. Sure. The conversation that goes on here that I found interesting was you know so you've got your map of the known galaxy and then you've got your grid over it, separating everything into one of four sectors: Alpha, Beta, Gamma, and Delta. And the conversation that takes place is. Uh, there's a 75% chance that this is going to go to one of the quadrants other than Alpha Quadrant. And then Janeway's like, well, I see it as a one in four chance to have a, a quick way home. Like, you're talking about something that could go anywhere in the galaxy. I, I don't. I think limiting it down to like one out of four is very uh, cavalier of you. <laughs> like, this thing could put you in the Alpha Quadrant, but like so far away from, from where you want to, like, you have infinite possibility just way out of whack on this thing it could go uh, to another galaxy as far as they fucking know it's a hole in in uh, in space space is infinite in many directions it could be a a, a fucking wormhole to the andromeda galaxy for all they know and then they all, all everyone there has space aids i mean i played mass effect andromeda and i will tell you right now the ending is is terrible for anybody who goes there stay away from andromeda at all costs <laughs> my wife's gonna hear that line and she's gonna she's gonna appreciate you more than she already does uh, yeah. But uh, uh, I say that wearing my Andromeda hoodie right now. Uh, <laughs> you know, the other thing, this wormhole, there was another kind of weird fork in the road. Like so far, they've stopped and, as Neelix has pointed out, pulled to the side of the road to investigate every little goofy thing they've come across so far. Because they're all about, you know, exploring while they're out here. But then there's this chance that there's this wormhole and it's like, we must go home at all costs, you know, redirect course and, and any chance of hope to get out of here is worth it it's it's weird that you're going to stop and smell the roses every inch of the way but then try and beeline it to this wormhole because you're in such a rush to go like it kind of struck out as weird i think i understand that they're exploring because they're kind of hoping to find stuff like this as they do it mm, true. so this is more a the thing they intend to find when they're going around smelling into all those roses so that their excitement to find it is natural to me and i get the whole you know making the assumption that the wormhole goes someplace in in the milky way galaxy just for the simplicity of the audience i think trying to open us up to new galactic vistas is is probably too heavy a lift but whatever they 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 find it they head off they close that teaser out quick and they arrive at that 
that wormhole. I noticed that uh, along with not getting an HD remake on this, there's no uh, skip intro option on Netflix for Voyager. Nope, we gotta watch that shit every time. Yeah. Although now I just hear it as Ian and Sarah's awesome recorder version now in my head as I watch it, which is, you know, it, it improves the experience. True. The wormhole, when they arrive there, they do the uh, the good old Blade Runner enhance, enhance, enhance. Classic sci-fi. Uh, until they, they find it, and they find that this thing is 30 centimeters wide. It is tighter than a virgin butthole on prom night. It is 30 centimeters for us Americans is one foot. So this thing is tiny. Uh, but fortunately... Magically, uh, it just so happens that Voyager has apparently one foot wide probes called microprobes that they can just kind of shoot into this tiny, tiny little wormhole. You know where they got those uh, microprobes that are used for invading little holes is, uh, I'm sure, the Tom Paris collection uh, in (laughs) his quarters. Tom, Tom, I understand I understand that you have a number of illicit sex toys that you enjoy waking your co-workers up to show. We need to scout this wormhole. Can we borrow one of those uh, jackrabbits I keep hearing things about? <laughs> so they, they they shoot the thing in there. Yeah, it starts starts digging around in the hole and we get some, some real spawn level CGI again. Some real white fire background, real... Real nice, and uh, unfortunately, because it is such a a tight uh, fit for the probe, uh, it gets stuck. Um, they're finding out that the wormhole is old, and so they give us a little bit of background that it's probably been collapsing for a very long time, and therefore it is why it has become so small. They, they can't penetrate. Even Tom's in, intrepid uh, sex toys are no match for the, 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 the space waves inside it, and that... that, uh, that Mini probe gets jammed in there somewhere before it can come out the other end, and as a consequence, That's I'm a not really pack. sure. <laughs> I think we just might have just jammed. popped the cloud already. They, you know, they just uh, you know they need an enema to get that that thing out. It gets it's, it gets impacted after too much. You know, trying to just jam it in, jam it in, jam it in. That's a real problem, and sometimes you need to grab an enema and 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 bend over and just just squirt it in there to get those probes out. After mm-hmm. now is a good time to talk about God. <laughs> I, I, I didn't to, know how to follow that up, so thank you. Let me, let me let me just bleach it out real quick. I was listening to our last episode when I started saying, you know, there's no mention of uh, religion in uh, Star Trek other than things that don't count as real religions, like uh, Indian magic. I'm listening in the car and I was like, oh man, there was that one uh, Star Trek movie where, you know, what does God need with a spaceship? I guess Sarek's brother is probably into the God. Anyways. No, that was Spock's brother. It was yeah, Sarek's Spock. son. Yeah. So you said, Spock. Yeah. yeah. Cybok. Yeah. It, it, you said it was, it was uh, Sarek's uh, brother. Oh, I'm sorry. I meant to Sarek's son. Sarek's son. That's okay. Anyways. Oh, I, I, I promise to edit that out so no one else can judge you on your, your faux pas and Trek lore. Uh, listen, dude, I'm just trying to scrub your, your enema probe conversation <laughs> on my mind. I'm, I'm a little rattled over here. So they uh, they get that thing jammed in there and uh, there's a bit of there's a bit of hope lost by everyone of of you know, oh it's a disappointment. We can't see what's on the other side. Uh, but Janeway's not giving up. 
you know, it's part of the dichotomy that uh, that comes up in the A plot is Janeway and and Kim are on the same lay wavelength. They want this to work. They want to work this to work. And Janeway's pumping Kim up like, no, don't let it go. Keep keep trying to get it loose. Keep trying to work it loose. Don't do not be discouraged. She is really pushing the optimism angle. You would expect it to be Harry Kim because he's the most attached to getting home. We, that's pretty much the only dot, you know thing we know about him aside from his memories of the fucking womb. Yeah, but. Janeway is is just as hard in pushing we need this to work and Tuvok continues to counsel caution but Janeway's not having it really now that I'm thinking about it Kim and Janeway are the only two people that they've really shown out of the main crew who have any like super intent interest in getting back into the Alpha Quadrant like Chakotay doesn't seem to give a shit none of the Maquis really seem to give a shit that we've seen so far Highlighted even further by the fact that the Starfleet captain keeps thwarting their best efforts to get home and they haven't mutinied yet. And then uh, Paris doesn't give a shit because he's going back to jail. Tuvok, I think, is like the black sheep of his family and and hides his security shame in the Delta Quadrant. But uh, yeah, so they they keep working on that. Um, And then where do we go in the episode? So after that, we actually get our first shot of the B plot, which is the the Dr. B plot. So it's the it's the sports bro that's in there for tearing his fucking rotator or whatever or his hand broke his hand something like that some sports injury, and they make a real point of having uh, this this officer talking to Kess about what happened and then referring to the doctor who is in the room assisting and treating his wound as if he's not a person he's he's there and he's acknowledging his presence but as more of an object than as a person. Not only does he dismiss him, I think there's some very clear distrust of him when they start talking about surgery procedures and stuff like that. Like, well, I don't know if I would be willing to to let this guy operate on me. And I thought it was um, odd that people in the 24th century with the level of integration with technology that they have would call to question uh, a holographic, you know, const- you know just technology having a real deep hand and surgical procedures and more invasive stuff like that it made sense to me for one reason from tng do you remember the episode where they find that derelict yeah sure you do the derelict hundred thousand year old ship and they have the whole leia brahms uh jordy holodeck think tank thing yes do you remember at the end of the episode the incredible hesitance everyone had at the idea of the computer steering the ship I hadn't really uh, thought about that. That's a that's a strong observation. I'm gonna have to go back and rewatch that. the The idea of the computer driving the ship for them is something that seems to be anathema to everybody, and it suggests to me that in the Star Trek universe, somewhere in some series Bible, maybe or or canon, there's a a, a separation that people are making from what people should be doing versus what artificial intelligence should be doing. Now, we've never seen that expressed explicitly, but it when I saw that, it reminded me of that episode of maybe this is why – and because this guy isn't the only one that is going to treat the doctor poorly in this episode. I'm going to uh, save all my uh, doctor AI comments for the uh, the soup scene a little later on, but you're, you're on to some strong stuff here. I do want to give a special shout out to Kess's wig. Or hair or whatever is going on there. She is looking pretty good at this point. Her space elf style is coming together great. She no longer looks like a rogue Q-tip, uh, you know, 
my my commendation to the uh, makeup and hair department. Yeah, we seem to be firmly at real hair levels with uh, with her now. Yeah, they got her in that blue uh, dress uniform thing. Yeah. It looks good. Like they've they've improved they've improved her look tremendously from from page boy haircut wig uh, dirtied up episode one Kess. So quick improvement there, and of course Kess is. The one who's the outsider, the naive outsider who's pointing out how the doctor is being othered to the doctor who essentially, essentially accepts it and and says, well, that's just my – that's just the way things are. People are going to treat me like shit, which she doesn't want to accept, of course, because that's her character. Uh, but the doctor at first, he's othered and he's obviously irritated by it, but he, he doesn't seem to be the – have any desire to try and change that on his own. Yeah. We transition back to the A plot after that and we get into uh, the fact that the probe has been detected by someone on the other side of the wormhole. So they can't get it loose just like they feared, but someone's scanning it. And so they are excited at this prospect. There's someone over there. So they start scrambling about potential ways to communicate with whoever is scanning. Seems so, so we, risky, man. My butt hole clenched when they started with this stuff. How so? You're out there solo. You don't know where this wormhole goes. You know, it could be the Kmart Klingons on the other. Like, they're they're getting ready to like basically bleed their heart out to whoever's willing to listen and you know feed them the line about how help us we're we're lost in space and this and that like. As soon as they start with the communication subplot in this with uh, the mystery other side, uh, the whole time I'm just expecting the audio to clear up and be like, you know, we are the Borg. Get ready to be assimilated, motherfuckers, because here we're coming for you now. I guess given where they are in the galaxy, I, you never expect them to bring out the Borg quite yet because, you know, that's that's going to be a thing later. I, I, I know it's in there somewhere. I don't know where they're going to introduce it. It just – I don't know. When you're – so exposed like that, just I, I guess I'd be a lot more risk averse if I was a captain in this situation. But whatever. So they start talking, they clean up the communication issues, and they get a doubting Thomas on the other end who does not believe that they are from the Delta Quadrant as they claim to be, because that is preposterous. And he chalks it up to people basically pranking him. Skipped ahead a little bit, and there's a couple things I wanted to to maybe look at. There's a scene between Harry and Bolana where we establish Something that you already mentioned, which is that the Maquis people aren't seem to be in a hurry to get home. Yeah. Get a little background on Bolana's life. Right? That uh, of the half and half of Klingon human, it's her dad who's the human and her mom who's the Klingon. Uh, they are they are not together. Uh, and Bolana does not get along with either of them. Apparently her dad left her uh, – Bolana and her mom and she doesn't talk to her mom anymore. So – broken home situation and she's just not giving a shit about getting home and therefore this is more a science experiment for her at the moment and she's not not all that excited about the prospect of this work i would say balana looks like she is at the most one-fourth klingon and three-quarters human now if her mom's human or her mom's a klingon her dad's human uh i would say that using her as a genetic specimen and and, and uh, Alexander Rojanko. What was Worf's baby's mama's name? A Kalar? Yeah, Kalar is uh, uh, was half human, half uh, Klingon. She a, looks relatively similar to what uh, what uh, 
Bolana's got. Do you think it bothers the the Klingons that uh, when there's crossbreeding that human genetic traits just seem to clobber the shit out of the Klingon ones? Well, I think it. I mean, if we look at Enterprise, I mean, have you ever watched any Enterprise? That's not a conversation we've had. No. Actually, get into get the fuck out of here. You're gonna sit there and tell me you're watching Enterprise and you won't give Discovery a shake. Because Discovery's not Star Trek, but we'll we'll get into that some other time. But uh, in Enterprise, they actually do episodes to canonically explain why it is that Klingons look so human-like, or as Voltaire would say, Puerto Ricans dressed in gold lame in TNG or not in TNG in TOS. And um, there's definitely like a, a resentment towards the Klingons that wind up looking very human uh, in in universe. So you would expect probably the same thing for 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 have havesies, if you will. Sure. But uh, they, they have that conversation and they get the, that whole plot going with with being able to start the communication. And sure enough, uh, they get someone on the other line who seems very hesitant to believe that they're in the Delta Quadrant. But importantly, whoever that is, is in the Alpha Quadrant. So this little tight virgin butthole with that's jammed probe just jammed in there from the Tom Paris sex experience. This this may be a ticket, uh ticket home somehow. At least some kind of message or or some communication could be established if they can convince whoever that is that they're legit. Once he acknowledged that he was in the Alpha Quadrant, I took a bet on what species it was gonna be. I don't think that he says that he's in the Alpha Quadrant. They identify that's where his transmission came from, and then they tell him. Sure, but I, I had a seeking, sinking suspicion as to what he was going to be, and uh, it, I ended up being right. <laughs> uh, but before we get any deeper on that, there's Janeway at her uh, at her desk, and then who rolls up on the you know ready room? Uh, it's Cass and her real hair and the line. <laughs> and the line out of out of Janeway's mouth is like, Kess, what a surprise to see you here. And it's like, why would it be a surprise, dude? You've you, you let these these aliens everywhere. Like she comes in and she apparently got a hot diet tip from Tom Paris to drink um what was it, fucking spinach juice or some fucking nasty ass sounding shit. And and it helps herself to a cup of that while Janeway has some 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 soup. And oh, from where? From the replicator, my man. From the fucking replicator. Let's move back over to Star Trek replicator, uh, the chronicles of replicator. I, I'm all over the place on this. You have gradually, episode after episode, had less and less replicator usage. You almost just got the fucking ship uh, destroyed by Space Nebula Baby over your coffee thing to try and get some antimatter or whatever. She rolls right up to that that replicator like it ain't no thing and, and makes up, yeah, spinach juice with a touch of, uh, I don't know, ginger or something. And then orders like fucking vegetable soup that she proceeds to drink like tea. Like what? what? <laughs> it's that we even get the replicator effect. I mean, they're not beating yeah, around the bush. Oh, yeah. We get that whole here's this matter forming up, you know, a special effect shot. But yeah. they sit down, they have their nasty fucking... She might as well been like, fuck the rations and fuck Neelix's shitty cooking. <laughs> or you should I'm going to that replicator. We should have seen like, oh, I can't, I don't want to eat any Neelix's spicy ass space rat. I'm going to have some some soup. But, space rat. What they should have said was, uh, oh, you know, we're going home here in about five minutes. I guess I can just go ape shit on this replicator again. <laughs> Time from creme brulee. But uh, mm-hmm. they sit down and Cass just goes right for it and says... 
Uh, everyone's treating the doctor like garbage. It's bullshit. Why is that happening? And Janeway straight up does not consider the doctor a person. The doctor is a technological tool and she's actually kind of angry that the doctor has no bedside matter. And they're probably just going to go in there and reach into his, his holographic brain and, and reprogram him. So he's not as much of a dickhead. So we don't get much empathy at, at first shot from, from Janeway about Cass's concerns about the doctor, because she obviously is of the mind that the doctor is, is just a extension of the computer and not a, a person. Here's here's a my big conversation uh, diversion here, and is the doctor AI? And I say that from a standpoint of Mass Effect, which I'm a big fan. And one of my favorite things in Mass Effect that they introduce just background thought is the concept of artificial intelligence versus what they would refer to as virtual intelligence. And artificial intelligence is sentient. Um, preserves its own life and makes independent thought. And then you've got a lot of stuff that you can interact with seamlessly, uh, the virtual intelligence, but really it's just an interface for a database that's there to present information and perform functions. I think it's important to note also in Mass Effect that artificial intelligence is seen as abhorrent and restricted while virtual intelligence is integrated into technology and is accepted. Mm -hmm. And therefore, the difference between the two is very relevant. And it becomes a very big story point, particularly in the second and third games as an artificial intelligence character, for lack of, of better term, um, becomes important to the story. Yes. I would argue that the that the ship's main computer, you know, the interface we get, the, the L-Cars audio and all that stuff. I mean, that's pretty obviously to me a virtual intelligence. I would agree that the the Major Barrett voice computer, like the name, the normal Starfleet twenty fourth century computer, is a virtual intelligence. However, here here's where I'm going to go deep into my headcanon on this, and I don't know where where you are, but this has always been my thought that, in particular, as we saw technology progress through TNG and now into Voyager, where we have where we have narrow gel uh, packs uh, that are increasing computer capacity, that computer capacity has, has increased at that exponential rate far enough that while the, the virtual intelligence interface into the computer is exactly that, it is sophisticated enough to accidentally create what we would call artificial intelligence because the computers are powerful enough to be able to construct and simulate the, the necessary connections to deliver on a request that does that. And we saw that initially in the Moriarty episodes that we've already referenced from TNG, where an accidental sentence from from uh, uh, LaForge creates Moriarty as, I, I would say, an artificial intelligence that displays sentience, consciousness, a desire to protect its own life, uh, and ability to, in, to act independently of the virtual intelligence that created it. Um, and the doctor, as I think a lot of sophisticated hollow programs that we see in DS9 and in Voyager as well, I think meet the threshold of being artificial intelligence. So what makes data a big deal? Because you have several potent examples of true artificial intelligence. You know, most of them are, are if, if we're going to consider these hologram people, these holodeck people to be uh, AIs in certain cases, um, there was the nanites, 
I want to say there was a couple other things. Usually it was TNG episodes with, you know, some AI getting loose and commandeering the ship and causing problems. Uh, my buddy Nate also pointed out, you know, we keep going back to the door lock issues, that there might be this innate fear of uh, the ships taking over and, and, and running amok and trapping people and decompressing things. And maybe that's why you don't see a lot of door locks actually being used was a uh, fear of, uh, of, uh, of Skynet rising or whatever. But, uh, you know, what... What makes Data such a big deal? Is it that he's a, he's a functional, self-contained android, or is it that he was the first example of AI, you know, developed by a Federation affiliate? Or well, he's not the first example of AI. There was examples of AI in TOS episodes, the Nomad probe, for example, or V'ger uh, from the movie that we named the show after. Um, so I think. It is a big deal because he's a fully functional man-built android that clearly, as they establish, um, shows all of the uh, affectations of true intelligence and and therefore grows in that fashion uh, as an independent unit and is something that man built for that purpose. And I guess this is one of those untread grounds in Star Trek, despite all of the hundreds of episodes of the show, we never have a firm direction on how the, the Starfleet really feels or the Federation really feels about artificial intelligence aside from a couple court scenes on individual bases. And that was that was those court scenes were more establishing that he was sentient and he was a life form, not what separates him and from from the other elements that we're talking about here. And if I can go kind of off on a further tangent here just for a second, I keep thinking, you know, what's What's the character flaw? What is the big, you know, the motivate? Just trying to wrap my head around what is humanity in the 24th century? Why are they obsessed with exploration? I mean, that really seems to be the primary drive of Starfleet. You cut out all the wars and stuff, the the reactive things that they're forced to be. And you look up, they are proactively and it's these explorers. You could have spaceships that the computers completely operate by themselves. And, you know, basically they, they could run the Enterprise D with one person. They choose to have these crews and these families and all these other, this, this desire to get out there and explore. I think life is too comfortable in the 24th century. I think that at their core, they've grown soft and there, there's no innovation. Time and time again, especially in Voyager, you've got this limited pool of resources and what I would call a pretty middle of the road crew. You're not dealing with really the best of the best here. You know, this isn't a flagship. This is a, a, a group that you're sending out to go after Maquis terrorists. Yet they're able to overcome problems in a matter of minutes or hours or days that the Federation scientists at large couldn't. And I think it's not that the, the Federation scientists couldn't, it's that they don't have to. And that there's a real stifled innovation in humanity because they've accomplished so much. There's no drive. There's no duress to really push people to have to improvise and uh, and come up with some radical solutions. Um, I, I think that what a lot of what you say is true, uh, that it would be interesting to have more of a meditation on what living in a utopian society does. We get small bits um, you know, from from characters in different parts of Trek canon, you know, Picard talking about how people in the 24th century worked better themselves. Um, a, a we, we get an episode later at Voyager where we meet a, a side character for a single episode as a crew member who 
has multiple degrees in advanced scientific principles, but kind of works in this menial job uh, on Voyager just because it gives them the opportunity to to do the experimentation with their free time that they want to be able to do. It, there's an idea of people wanting the the to do something with their lives because otherwise, what are they going to do except sit in opulence and unlimited everything they could possibly want? And um, it never gets explored, really. Um, and I think the show would be uncomfortable in exploring it simply because uh, once you start going down that road, I don't think there's any coming back. You know, once once you open up that box, it's a dark place to go. So they, they just don't go there. So to circle this back around this uh, discussion about the doctor and his role on the ship, you know, you've got this emergency holographic band-aid, which has already been used beyond its intended purpose. And it's now becoming a part of the crew, as, as Kess is pointing out. You know, it's capable of a lot more. And if it's gone from being what I think was supposed to be a virtual intelligence, and it's now starting to crest onto an artificial intelligence. And, you know, this was designed by the by this Zimmerman guy back in Starfleet. And I want to say that um, uh, Barkley had some partners programming too, if I remember correctly. Like we were gonna, and we're gonna see them again. Like, why would you not? You know, if if you've gone to all the program, to the the difficulty to to make this program, you're telling me you wouldn't just have this thing just running in your office for a couple months with you hanging out and and interacting, and like working the bugs out. You wouldn't realize that this thing's going to achieve sentience at some point on its own. Like, I think this is just one of those high level writing issues. I'm not going to put this on the Voyager writers. I'm not even put this on Star Trek writers as a whole. There are certain logical paths that they can't go down in episodic 90s sci-fi TV. Fair this enough. is I mean, we're we're in that deep Mass Effect Battlestar Galactica getting into the fucking nitty-gritty about philosophical questions level with our discussion. It's good that we do because we can, but I understand why they can't go down this road. And I think it's interesting enough that they show that Janeway just sees the, the doctor as a piece of equipment. And she swift, swiftly switches a uh, tactic after Kess doesn't let up and, and says he's alive and he needs to be treated with respect. And Janeway takes a step back and says, OK, tell you what, I'll I'll go see what I can do for him. And that wraps that scene. She leaves with her nasty pickle juice or whatever. And uh, we get back to the A plot. Um, we know that the voice on the other end is Romulans at this point, And they're trying desperately to raise them back on voice communications. And we get Janeway after hours. We get Janeway with her uh, woken up by word that they've got the, the Romulan ship back on voice communications. And Kate Mulgrew is looking foxy as hell in her nightgown and perfect bed hair. Uh, is that the words you want to use? Because in my notes, I believe I said uh, Janeway's hair looks like mid-90s Marvel comic hair. If I don't know any better, I would say that there is two life forms laying in that bed. One is Captain Janeway and the other is something stuck to her head. It, it looks It looks like soap opera hair. It's just like it's it's just this perfect puffed out flowing red locks. It's six people worth of hair. It's crazy. <laughs> it's a lot of hair. 
Uh, you know, you, you wonder if she's got some sort of like weird sort of space physics going on when she ties that thing up in the morning. Uh, but, you know, rolling around in her, her nightgown looking looking sharp. So she gets a message that, you know, they got this dude back on the horn and uh, she starts negotiating and trying to roll some diplomacy on him from her quarters. And this guy is not really feeling uh, the, the story that she's laying down. For some reason, the the ship being in the Delta Quadrant and broadcasting a signal through a wormhole just seems like complete poppycock to this guy. And I'm scratching my head. I'm like, how could anybody doubt anything in space? Because if there's one thing I've learned from Star Trek, it is that anything is clearly possible. Nothing is too zany. And if you are in a spaceship, you know, the sky's the limit. And it circles me back around to you like, oh, how could, uh, you know, how, how could a ship being knocked to the Delta Quadrant by some malevolent force be impossible? I'm telling you, man, Starfleet covers this shit up. Every every space accident, every weird entity with a godlike, uh, running with a godlike entity, they are closing the books. They are getting out the black magic markers and they are censoring the fuck out of this stuff. I like your headcanons about both terrorism and the fact that space travel is like more Lovecraftian than the Federation lets anyone know. And then, and they paint this picture of it being this idyllic utopia exploration mission thing. Mm -hmm. So they'll actually get people to sign up. Uh, But in reality, they face dark horrors and insanity. It's nice. Uh, But uh, I think really I can chalk this up to Romulans being naturally suspicious of everything. And that's why I love it. I mean, that's a, that's, that's a race. So that's a racial trait that they, that they establish uh, long before this and they're carrying it forward. And I buy it on that level. And I actually also in this scene, I really liked all of Janeway's non verbals. Like Kate Mulgrew really like is, is clearly into making this guy understand. And it's reflected in her words, but she does a lot of non verbals. She goes around her, her uh, quarters, sits on things, thinks about things, you know, speaking to the voice above, like pleading. They do a great job of, of helping her as an actress play out her emotions as much as she's able to also express them in dialogue. Very convincing body language uh, for the guy who can only hear her. The the Romulan uh, voice we're hearing, also good. The actor they got to play this guy, we, we, we get to see him in the next scene. Because they figure out how to do a little little talk. They got to overcome some some phase variants. They talk about how there's something going on with this wormhole that's making it difficult to, yeah, to get the visual. Google Duo and make sure that everybody's running the same version. But they get it going. They get that Google Hangouts online. And uh, we we get our visual with the Romulan. He's, he's super Romulan. He's got the face ridges and he's got the green skin. And uh, I got a Kevin Nealon vibe from him. Nilon? I think if Kevin Nilon from SNL was a Romulan, it would be this guy. <laughs> I honestly don't even know who that is. Ah, man. Yeah, I know. You made a reference. It's like, boom. SNL? Like, what year? Is that your current staff member? I don't know like who that is. The, uh, it was like the... Um, God damn it. Adam Sandler era. Yeah, I... Honestly, if if it happened on SNL and it was... It was, bef- it was a, you know after 1985 but before 2008 i'm probably not gonna know except from the big stuff i'm sorry well okay kevin nilan looks like uh this romulan if he wasn't a romulan let me let me put a perspective that way 
Well, Kevin Nealon, the Romulan, uh, whoever that is, uh, he... Romulan. Romulan is on there, and Captain Janeway is doing everything in her power to convince this guy, we are legitimately stranded in the fucking Delta Quadrant, please God help us. And they work him down by bringing up his family, talking about how he hasn't seen them since he's on this mission, and he's... He's hasn't seen her. It's a science vessel. She she hasn't. He hasn't seen his daughter since she was born, and and the feels are happening. My my wife said that you know this episode shouldn't be called "Eye of the Needle." It should be "Eye of the Feels," because this scene they really get the emotion turned up. We in in both the Romulan starting to crack and Janeway just pleading with this guy, not begging, but but going full speed ahead at that that barely restrained level of you have to understand you may be our only hope of letting the people that we love know that we're still alive and it's good it's a great scene it is good and then she starts you know first it's uh hey you know let us forward over a bunch of uh emails that we want you to forward into federation space so our guys know that we're alive and he's like whoa look i'm not authorized to do this um, you know, she's playing that, that, you know, for the love of God, be a, you know, be a, be compassionate card. Uh, this dude, on the other hand, it's like, look, lady, I don't think you understand how the Romulan Senate works and uh, what my role as a nobody is and what happens to people who step too far a line uh, in this part of the galaxy. Like the, the Romulans are not big on uh, freedoms and that kind of stuff. So I, I, it, it was it was a potent scene of diplomacy on her end. I think to the uh, credit of the actor who played the Romulan uh, uh, captain, um, it would be easy to deliver that dialogue and come off like a dick. But it's yeah. a lot harder to deliver that dialogue and come off as like, mm, I get where this guy's coming from. Yeah. And he does. He does it in a way of like, I, listen, I'm with you. You're all y'all y'all in a bad situation, but I cannot put my foot on this gas any further without making people notice me in a way that I may not enjoy. And um, he's he's good. I, I don't know who the actor is. I'm going to have to look it up later. It's Kevin Nealon. He's from SNL. Oh, OK. Yeah, I'll have, to, yeah. I'll have to check him out on YouTube. I'm sure he's hilarious. Yeah. In between uh, this and, and the night scene, there was a there was a quick part of the B plot where Janeway goes down and talks to the doctor. And they have a scene where he's um, he's basically recounting to the captain that he's treated like a piece of furniture and in a way that is – he expresses the disrespect that's being done to him and it obviously bothers him. And Janeway eventually just kind of comes out and says, is there anything that I can actually do for you, Toaster? And it's it's uncomfortable for her. She plays it that this is weird. Like she's asking her microwave if there's anything that it needs. Uh, and the doctor doesn't quite yet know what to do with that. Comes back with the idea of I'd like to have more control over when I get turned off. And, and, and Jane Ray uh, suggests that maybe they can give the doctor the ability to turn himself off if he wants to be off. So the EMH main character motivation that he has had up to this point is that essentially existence is pain for this guy. He's like uh, the me seeks from Rick and Morty. If, exactly. he is, if he is corporal, then it is a bad time for him. 
and his driving goal in any situation is to knock out what's in front of him and be turned off. And, uh, and her hesitation, you know, when she, like you just pointed out, like her talking to this EMH like a person and not like a, a light switch. You know, there was a next gen episode where someone asks for something from the replicator and then says, thank you to the, the replicator. And I believe it's a Jordy. Like, did, why, why do you say thank you? It's such an alien concept. And it's funny now, as we move into this world of uh, smartphones, AIs, Google homes, Alexis, and that other stuff, you know, I, I catch myself sometimes wanting to say thank you to someone who, you know, the voice that's just provided me with information. And I'll be curious to say, see which way humanity really goes, you know, staying polite with technology or just treating it like a doormat. The doctors, uh, the way Robert Picardo plays the emerging thought that he actually has once and he, 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 you know, he processed this idea that there could be things that he wants aside from doing his job, you know, the way that he takes the uh, obvious, an obvious great deal of pleasure in, in teaching Kess um, is played with a kind of subtlety that I have grown to appreciate from him so far in the series. It's consistently his scenes have been the best scenes, even in bad episodes. Yes. And in this, a good episode, he continues to deliver. Um, I really, I really liked that scene. I liked his sort of uncertainty to what to do with the question yet still having an answer. Um, and as well, as much as, as Kate Mulgrew playing Janeway's, uncomfortable revelation that she's asking a toaster what what it would like to do for breakfast yeah so that was a real solid development scene there and then uh while they're having that chat torres does some work and finds out that the signal that they're sending this audio along and using this microprobe as like the bridge through this wormhole that they can go further with it do they have almost a straight up jean Luc scene that coffee commercial uh, moment happens almost again where they just get super hype with each other. It's the first time that we've seen Torres actually excited about any of this because now we're not talking about passing letters to people who might not be there. Uh, we're talking about using this uh, microprobe as a relay and being able to send a transporter signal across. It is where we go from the dichotomy between Torres and, and Tuvok being more cynical and Kim and Janeway being more uh, positive and, and hopeful to everyone is starting. The hope is starting to grow for everybody. Like everyone's buying into, Oh man, maybe we can just go home. They, we get, we get another quick doctor scene where the cat, where Kess comes in and, and relays that information to the doctor that there could be a way for them to get home. And he has this very, dour and 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 gut punch moment where he just tells Kess, you know, can you just make sure I'm turned off if you all leave so that I'm not here, you know, alone? Here's the dark part of that. I think if they're going to beam out and uh, essentially abandon ship to relocate through it, like, you know, they're going to use the auto destruct thing and just fucking blow that up. So Federation technology isn't just floating adrift. Right. I mean, we, they never really address it um, since the they, they're continuing to move the episode forward. So they never dwell on what's going to happen to the doctor again. And we all know that the transportation plan is doomed to failure. Man, just because the show doesn't I end. got some blood in the water on this thing. Like, I love industrial accidents. That's like my one of my many sick passions. 
Uh, <laughs> okay. <laughs> Do go on. I mean, I, I talked about, you know, jamming a probe into a, a virgin uh, butthole uh, in space. But no, no. Tell me about how you like industrial accidents. You ever want to you want to run some good reading, man? Get on Wikipedia and look up a list of industrial accidents. There's some some really, really excellent nuclear disasters out there. Uh, one of my favorite was uh, I think it was in Boston, like a molasses storage facility burst and like the streets just filled complete with molasses and like killed a bunch of people blob style like <laughs> Jesus yeah there's well we'll do a whole podcast on industrial accidents I'll, yeah, I'll take you guys down a real trip but anyways because of that I love transporter accidents in Star Trek they they're they're cool uh you know I like seeing people get turned inside out or rocks and bulkhead fused in them and uh, they start talking about transporting people across this rickety ass bridge. And like my mouth is like salivating for like some really good uh, disaster sequences to take place here. They start they uh, they con this guy. They're like, hey, let us send over this test cylinder that, you know, is going to basically serve as a proof of concept before we even talk about doing people. And I thought it was real ballsy of this captain. I don't know how big this ship is. They, they, they give the impression that he may be out there. Alone or close to alone because when they bring up the idea, the test cylinder works and when they bring up the idea of like, hey, can we kind of roll over to your ship now? He's like, whoa, 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 whoa. No. Um, can, can, no can do, pal, but I can I can bring in a troop ship or something and we can we can get you guys all stowed away on something else. Well, they go to t- transport this test cylinder and like he, they're not t- transporting it back to his like transporter room or a cargo bay or whatever. He's sitting on the bridge and they're transporting this thing like no shit five inches away from this guy's face. Well, I guess at this point they he's got the, the trust has been built. I know and the also, trust is there. They but... don't want to they don't want to build another set. <laughs> so they got sure. the, they got the bridge look for the view screen. They're just going to they're going to save some money. What they're talking about doing is like one of those YouTube videos where someone's like up in the stands in a in a in some sporting arena and they're like throwing a football into a red solo cup and it was like yeah like that's that's essentially what they're doing here like this is the most hail mary of all transports and yeah okay you know sure let, let's try this thing and uh, we're talking about like pinpoint accuracy required on this go, go ahead and put it right next to my fucking face that's. Sure. What's the worst that could happen? I've always wanted a cylinder sticking out of my fucking head. Well, it does work. Sadly, I was again, my my dreams were thwarted here. And this guy who's a scientist, so I kind of buy his enthusiasm for all of this, says, "Okay, we got to try it on a person now. So be me to you. And so our next shot is the the Romulan captain being beamed to the uh, to Voyager from the alpha quadrant and they do a lot of techno babble oh we got this phase variance we got to adjust for this but we're going to make this happen and so they're doing the 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 transporter surgery to get this guy over and peter's is is drooling at the idea that we're going to have like a a horrible death scream or the guy's going to come come through as a, a inside out or something uh but lo and behold they pull him through and he's there in all of his terrible romulan uh garb glory love it uh and again this is why this is a great episode is you know it's there's going to be a failure somewhere here you know the 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 there's seven seasons of this you know they're not going to succeed 
and I thought they did such a good job building the tension. Like you don't know, like was that cylinder? Because they really explained what that cylinder was in depth. Like was that cylinder going to cause some problem and explode? Was this guy going to die in his transport in? Was he going to die on his transport out? Were other people going to die? Like what point is failure going to strike? And and they really, they held it to the very end, man. They did a great job with this. They did. They kept building that tension that something was going to go wrong. And just when you thought things are working out, what happens here? Tuvok's got his tricorder out. You scan no, the guy. No, first he's got his phaser out. Tuvok's a fucking killer, man. Like, I he, I think he got his t- – I'll have to recheck. I, I remember him getting oh, – he, he, he holsters his phaser and then draws the tricorder out. Like this guy, and he he's scans, an animal. He scans his oven mitt outfit and says, hey, um, quick question um what year is it and and rami is real freaking confused like what the fuck do you mean what year is it it's it's uh by your reckoning 2351 and then Surprise! everyone it's another temporal plot you've won <laughs> you know like you've won disappointment it's everyone is crushed as they all realize this guy is from 20 years in their past and that this phase variance they've been detecting is that this wormhole is not just a hole in space. It's also a hole in time. And so they've got a new set of problems. They bring the party to the conference room. And they start talking to him. And they start talking about their options. And they run through the temporal prime directive issue that they clearly cannot go back to 20 years in their past. Now, mind you, Harry Kim is all for it. He's like, fuck it, get me the fuck out of the Delta Quadrant. But Janeway shoots it down. We can't go back. That would cause huge changes in the timeline if a bunch of people from 20 years in the past showed up. Um, They talk about the idea that perhaps the Romulan captain could warn uh, the Starfleet not to send Voyager out on its mission. And Chakotay... Of all fucking people, who is the bounty hunt target of that mission, is like, no, nah, you can't do that either, because we've had such a huge impact in this quadrant. And that was the only line of dialogue where I just bowled my fist and wanted to punch something. This whole scene, and, and I get it, you know, you, you can't whatever time... But they just roll out, like you just said, the worst reasoning possible for why this guy can't do anything to prevent this major disaster, to prevent all these Starfleet people who just died on the, you know, the transport, um, you know, the 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 incident, the the first officer, all of the medical staff, like these lives just mean nothing because a ship that wasn't even supposed to be there in the first place uh, saved a couple candy corns from a situation. I, let's let's back up here for a second. They don't even know they did that. Remember? Yes. It was a big let's, let's, let's back up. This is season one, episode six. This is now the third, essentially third time conundrum episode. One half of Voyager so far has been involved in some sort of weird temporal loop bullshit like whatever good they think they've done half of that has been completely could be completely negated because it's a it's a time situation Uh. let's go through let's go through it okay 
All right, so let's put the premiere aside for a second. Okay. Episode two, Parallax. Uh, we're it's our own fuck up. We're uh, through the looking glass. Uh, the next episode, time and again, they don't remember it happened. Sure. Uh, ep- episode four, uh, Phage. Uh, Neelix gets a lung stolen and they meet space Nazis who want to steal their organs. Okay. No big uh, impact there on life. Uh, episode five, they accidentally hurt a, a space amoeba and have to fix it by fucking up their own ship. Okay. That's the impact they've had aside from the premiere, which is when they stuck themselves. I'm sorry. Janeway stuck them in the Delta quadrant by deciding that Mayfly space elves were more important than than uh, uh, their own well being, and they couldn't. She couldn't find an interesting or novel way to blow the station up after sending them home, and therefore decided to get involved with their fight with the uh, Kmart Klingons. That's it. That's the only thing they've actually done in the Delta Quadrant that fucking matters. And the one thing that they actually did was against the Prime Directive. They inserted themselves into foreign affairs that they should not have, and that's what we've been really crucifying her on was the fact that she didn't stick to the Prime Directive there. So. Their only leg to stand on here for why they can't withdraw is because they violated the prime directive once. Undoing that should be like, yeah, we shouldn't have really done that in the first place. So let's just back out. Yeah, they've only been in the Delta Quadrant for for weeks at this point, maybe a couple months. So I, I, I know the temporal prime directive, I don't think, has a time limit on it. You're not supposed to ever fuck with the past. But this is close enough that if you're willing to break the prime directive to save the 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 Ocampa, then why the fuck uh, aren't you willing to bend the rule a little bit to get yourselves out of the mess you've made? And this Romulan's playing ball too. This Romulan, yeah, he's all like, for it. He's like, I'll fucking help you out. You guys are all kinds of fucked up. I will. Let's do some shit about this. No, but but he's once they start talking about like endangering the time space continuum, he's like, yeah, I don't want to do anything to you know weaken the Romulan Star Empire. Like he's playing along and it got me to thinking the humanity, the Federation encounters so many opportunities to like impact timelines and go to the past. Like, and every time we see it, the, the, the people involved in this time fuckery are so conscious of what could happen and they do the right thing every time. Do you think for a minute that these other species are playing ball? Like, all right, I'll give it to the Romulans. They're cautious. They're smart people. They're crafty. They know that, you know, they're, they're playing with her. You think the fucking Klingons care? Do you think the, well, I mean, this, you think that this is the basis of, of the entire, uh, temporal cold war plot in enterprise. I didn't watch enterprise again, but, but like, do you think the Borg would, would not take the opportunity to fuck around and, and give himself a hookup back in time. Do you think the pack led, if the pack led had a chance to go back and like know the lottery numbers that they're not going to be. So really how fragile is the time, the, the time space continuum? You know, they, they treat it like this glass egg all the time in the Federation, but it, what everything you're talking about is a huge plot line in enterprise, believe it or not. The, the, the first couple seasons of the show are about, uh, species and uh, political groups that master time travel fucking with time against each other and and that's what that's about so uh, another reason for you to watch Enterprise my friend this is this is a thing they do I'll have to do some research I don't know I'm, I'm gonna prepare for this conversation okay <laughs> sorry I know Enterprise is a might as well be if this Voyager is something to give the time of day is uh, of I, I know Enterprise might as well be a black hole to you so the, they, they end up coming back around to, okay, well, we don't have any other good options, so 
We're back to our original request. Cat Romulan Captain, sir, they don't know his name yet, by the way. Would you, after we have left on our mission, be willing to then send our messages after we're lost and therefore no longer can impact what's going on uh, to let our families know? And and he immediately agrees. He said, I would be happy to do that. Um, the most compassionate he, Romulan he, ever. He gives it a, a, them his real name, finally. He says it's uh, Telecromor. Uh, he's from the Romulan Astrophysicist Society. And he says, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to deliver your messages. And by the way, if you make it back in 75 years, I'll, you know, I'm a, I'm a Romulan. I live forever. So look me up. I'd like to know that you made it home. And so he is 100% on board. They get, you see the scene in the transporter room where they give him the messages and send them back. You get the swelling, happy music uh, of, of mission complete. And they send them back successfully. There's no industrial accident at all. Again, nail biter. I'm like, this guy has to die on this last turnaround. Like, they've endeared this character to you. He's come through where you couldn't think Romulans could possibly have a heart. This is where this guy like makes it out to the other side as a as a pile of quivering goo and rib cage. But he makes it. He makes it, and it in the, the show seems primed and ready to say, "Okay, little little accomplishment done." You know, one more uh, a piece of the puzzle towards Voyager getting home has been put together. Good job, team. But what happens, Peter? What happens? Uh, party pooper Tuvok coming in uh, well after the ability to influence the situation and tells Janeway, oh, hey, by the way, this uh, little uh, Timmy dipshit nobody scientist from Romulus Turns out we have a record of him for some reason. And, oh, yeah, he dies like uh, four years before we leave. I I love the way the reveal comes down because all of the music and the shots in the scene, if you've watched Star Trek before, you think this is over. They, 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 are, they are using the production kind of beats we're used to to make you think, all right, we're done here. And right at the end, Tuvok comes in and says – I have one more thing to add now that he's gone. And she starts explaining that he looked him up in the database and the music changes, gets a little dark. And the expression on Janeway's face when they zoom in is she already knows what he's going to tell him. And she is crushed. You can see it on her face like, oh, motherfucker, please do not tell me what you're about to tell me. And he lays it out that he died four years before they left. And Kim goes nonverbal. He just slumps in, into his station. He is killed. And it's Balana and Tuvok who are now trying to convince Kim and Janeway that things are going to be all right. Maybe he passed it off in, 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 the, in, in a will. And they flip what they started as those two are the doubters and the other two are the optimists. Now the other two have, have resigned themselves to defeat. And now they're like, wait, maybe it worked out. But everyone knows this probably didn't work out. They really needed to work this Romulan dude to get him to do this. And there's probably no way that if he died before they left, that there's any hope that those messages. If I was Janeway, I'd have come right over the table and kicked Tuvok in his fucking mouth. Like, (laughs) I want to say that this is not the first time like he's withheld some pretty beefy info. And you're the captain. You need to be playing the game with all the cards on the table. 
if you knew that this guy was going to die, like sh- he could have pulled Jamie off of the side and been like, hey, uh, quick heads up. This guy dies four years before we take off. So we need to like really stress that he has some sort of contingency. And it'd be like a normal conversation point. But like, hey, you know, we appreciate you doing all this. This is a big deal. We're definitely going to look you up. Just just in case, you know, something crazy happens and you slip in the bathtub. Um, could you make sure your daughter or like, you know, your Romulus lawyer <laughs> – has a, has a copy of this <laughs> just just in case you know covering her ass cya uh and he doesn't and and tuvok is not a team player he's a dickhead and i would have thrown his ass in the rig <laughs> fuck him i mean i get it i get why i mean they don't give he doesn't give his name until they're done and the whole temporal prime directive would suggest they don't even want to suggest that to him because Ugh. he's a Romulan. He's a crafty fucking Romulan. He might put two and two together and be like, they're telling me that shit. Cause I'm like, no, I don't give a 20. shit. You're like, if you, if you're going to fucking violate the prime directive again and, and blow up the caregiver station and all the other stuff you've already fucked around with and, and cause problems. Like what's one Romulan living an extra four years or uh, whatever. Just, and I get why they did it. And it was nice to see, uh, a sad ending to the episode, but just man, Tuvok needs a slap in the mouth. I mean, Maybe I think Tuvok was the one. Tuvok was wholeheartedly attempting to convince Janeway, like perhaps it is that uh, he sent it along in a will. Like maybe, maybe the Klingons onto something here. Like, but it was too late. Yeah, it was maybe over. you should and have Janeway, told me, motherfucker. Janeway just says we're moving on, and that's the end of that uh, of the a plot. That's the last we hear of it. We end on the B plot. And uh, we get the second time around of douche bro workout guy coming in, uh, kind of talking like the doctor's not there and disrespecting him. You know, total replay of the first scene. And the doctor stands up for himself. He asserts his authority as the chief medical officer, uh, tells the guy if he sees him again for these recurring sports injuries because he's not being careful. He's going to have words with his superior officer, like there's going to be consequences and he needs to shape up and and stop acting like an asshole and the guy is immediately cowed by the toaster treating him like that but but says yes sir of course sir and then leaves as soon as he's dismissed and um the doctor clearly uh takes a bit of pride in asserting himself and establishing his first steps towards an independent identity where he has agency Cool, uh, cool background that I read. Uh, whatever the crew complement is supposed to be of the the Maki Starfleet crew, like whatever the the people they have, they never exceed that number with the amount of extras that they show. So that guy eats one of the crew spots that they could possibly have for uh for extra casting. Yeah, I saw that in the Wikipedia article as well that they uh. The number of people we see on screen, different faces, never exceeds what could potentially be on the ship. Now, given that's 140 plus, that's fortunately not a high bar to clear. Sure. Uh, but um, we do definitely uh, have some recurring faces, some recurring extras. I think we mentioned Catcher Guy from the premiere. He's he, We see him a lot like as a background extra. Uh, there's a couple of guys we've already seen that we'll continue to see. The you know, smoldering umpire. <laughs> the smoldering death glare umpire who does all of the background acting. Uh, yeah, so, yeah, they 
they um, they use those de- guest spot opportunities uh, rarely for people as well. I mean, I think the only two celebrity guest spot crew members we ever see were the current King of Jordan, who's apparently a huge Star Trek fan. So when he was the crown prince, he, he ends up on the show. And then Tom Morello, the former bassist from Raging Against the Machine. Hmm. Um, they don't they don't mess around too much with uh, with uh, fritting away these opportunities. So all in all, I'd have to say this is a five out of five episode. It was so good that in the end when they, they do the big reveal in the transporter room that, you know, this guy is uh, from the past. Like my eyes roll back and I'm like, of course, it's another fucking time travel uh, episode. Again, 50% of the show that we've seen so far. But it, even that it wasn't it was such a huge part of the story, but it was not the the end all be all of the story. Uh, great character development, uh, excellent direction, um, good pacing, good character development, and and again anything that can end on a bittersweet note in a in a Star Trek episode, um, I feel is is a win for the right team. So uh, very impressive. And if this would be all that we were dealing with from here out, I would be ecstatic. This is almost the reverse of what we've watched so far. Like every complaint we've had about the show, um, this manages to do right. We get character development that really feels like it matters. We get great acting. We get great passion and performances. We get a clear, cohesive narrative structure. We get a, a very interesting space conundrum. Um, but yeah, they reuse the temporal thing for the third time, but it's done in a way that serves the story and not as not an excuse for, for the plot of the week. And it's it hits you. Obviously, I was spoiled on this because I've seen it before. So the intensity of the final gut punch wasn't as, as bad for me. But it was my wife's first time seeing it. And she was just, ah, motherfucker. You know, like it, it really hits you at the end when you realize everything they've done has not mattered. And it, it turned, it, you know, everything they thought, all their hopes and dreams are dashed literally in the last moment and there's nothing they can do about it there they are helpless and um, aside from minor complaints about chakotay's dialogue in the conference room scene um i don't i don't have a word of complaint i consider this not only a fine example of of the show and a great episode of voyager but a, a great episode of star trek in general um and i really enjoyed it well uh we'll see if that enjoyment uh, last, what's the next episode in our queue? Oh, my friend, uh, ex post facto is our next episode, and it is the episode where Tom Paris's uh, sex sex crime proclivities they come back to haunt him, Peter, and we get to experience uh, the consequences for Tom's perversion. Mm. I look forward to it. Well, let's uh, let's go ahead and close it out here. I'm going to go with uh, our rule of acquisition number 125. Uh, And uh, I think this one fits perfectly for this episode. You can't make a deal if you're dead. (laughs) Oh, man. Maybe that's the rule that Janeway shouts as he beats the shit out of Tuvok before throwing him in the brig for not... Not being a team player on this one. I'm going to go ahead and make a – I'm going to make my prediction here. I'm going to say that this guy passed that isolinear chip off onto his daughter who he mentioned before. And I think that their message um, to Starfleet still gets received even though this guy died. I know the answer to that. Do you want me to spoil it? Mm, no. I mean we're going into this thing for the long haul. We'll, we'll get there eventually. 
All right, man. I enjoyed reviewing a good one with you. Yeah. I did. I was wondering, like, once we got to a good one, would it be as much fun? It is, because we could be hardcore nerds. Yeah, this one ran a little longer. I think we're at an hour and 22 minutes here. So uh, hopefully you guys are enjoying, you know, the the, the nerdy, deeper, introspective uh, conversations as much as the, uh, the, the butt plug and jackrabbit. Not as much shit in fucking this one. A lot of talk about, you know, virtual intelligence versus artificial intelligence. But, you know, hopefully still the content people crave. But until next time, uh, I'm Joseph. I'm Peter. And this has been V'ger Please, a not-this-time hateful voyage through the Delta Quadrant. <laughs>